everything has to be done intrinsically. There's no extrinsic motivation to do the trail. No one has ever gotten rich doing the trail. But, you know, the trail, if you allow it, if you humble yourself to it, it'll shape and mold you into, for me, it shaped and molded me into the type of person I wanted to be. Hey everybody, this is Driven By with Sam Coates. On this podcast, you're going to hear people that see a need and they do something about it. You're going to hear what drives them, lessons learned along the way, how they built it, and how things are evolving yet still today. It is great to have you on the show. For more information, go to podcast.sampcoats.com. That's podcast.sampcoats.com and subscribe to our weekly email list. And check out my show on Twitter, Instagram, at Sam P. Coates. This show can be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts at Driven By with Sam Coates. If you like the show, please spread the word, tell a friend, and leave a review, and check out previously recorded episodes. I hope you have a great day. My guest this week is Warren Doyle. Warren holds the informal record for hiking the Appalachian Trail the most times. That number is 18. Yes, he has hiked 18 total times from Georgia to Maine, which is 2,190 miles and typically takes five to seven months to complete. In 1973, Warren set the unofficial endurance record of hiking the trail in a record time of 66 days. Since then, Warren has gone on to start the Appalachian Trail Institute, which teaches and equips hikers with the training they need to have a better chance at completing the trail. The trail has a 75% failure rate. This conversation is much more than just about hiking the Appalachian Trail. It also covers what drew him in early on, going against the grain, how the trail changes you, the power of nature, how society can conform you, dancing, joy, and more. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Hey, everybody. I'll just make this easy. Do you need insurance? Do you want another opinion about your insurance? Just go ahead and call Matt Haga with State Farm. It'll be easy. If you're thinking about it, just do it. We do have listeners to this show from all over the world. So this offers only for listeners in the state of Tennessee and Mississippi in the United States. Matt Haga State Farm offers auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance. Go to madhaga.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-A-A-G-A.com and contact them. When you contact Matt, tell him I sent you. Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. Now we're going to get back to the show. 
when you were 23, you said that you found something that made the real world sensible to you. Can you talk about what that was like and what you were experiencing at the time and also maybe what you were struggling with prior and how this started to take hold in your life? Well, I don't know whether I would call it struggling. I was wondering. Uh, that's a little bit different than struggling. You know, I had a good education, a proper education. Maybe that's what I was wondering how proper it was to reality. But, you know, through my undergraduate and graduate uh, courses, I was given points of reference. It's like connect the dots when you used to play that game where if you connect the numbers, the dots, you come up with a picture. And so the dots that were given me to connect, I had the freedom to connect those dots. But the picture always was going to be of the picture that my teachers wanted me to see. And the pictures that my teachers wanted me to see was acceptable. It was safe. It was safe in academia. Many of my teachers probably didn't have too much out of academia experience. So there was, I think, a, you know, being from a working class background, I thought that there was maybe a sort of a disconnection between what we learn in school and what actually is happening in the real world. So um, before I was to enter that real world as a fully certified and acceptable, educated, credentialed citizen, I started to question that system. Uh, I started questioning it from my actual experiences in doing volunteer work in the mountains of interior Jamaica, and also on the edges of the coal fields in West Virginia, in central Appalachia. And so I decided to go on a walkabout. I decided to go on a pilgrimage and remove myself from the society that I was being conditioned for to fit in and remove myself to some place where I could look back in and get an unbiased, unprejudiced, undiscriminatory, unpolitically motivated viewpoint of the world. And I chose the Appalachian Trail because the trail knows no prejudice nor discrimination. And so I removed myself from my real world environment in order to look back in to get a better perspective. So based on what I learned at the age of 23 by walking from Georgia to Maine, uh, bolstered by my experiences at the age of 23 working for about two and a half months in the interior of Jamaica and the summer after my senior year uh, working in uh, West Virginia uh, where I met my mentor. Based on all those experiences, I was given new dots to connect, not you know, from my traditional education, but from my experiences. And those new dots, when I connected them, showed me a picture that was different than what I learned in school. And basically, in the subsequent years, especially in my 20s and 30s, when I had more experiences, that picture that was shown me, the second picture that was shown me was the one that rang most true, that resonated more genuinely with me. So that's the thing that, you know, it was a, it was a clarity. It was a clarity of what was moving me around the world, what direction it was pushing me, and it also gave me the courage 
and the self-confidence to resist that if there was some place I didn't want to go to. And what was it specifically at that time that was moving you and pushing you? Well, you know, there's expectations. There's the the expectation, you know, for first-generation uh, working-class college-educated people is to become a member of the middle class. And basically, the middle class expectations was to to get educated, to get a job, to find someone, to marry someone, to start a family with someone, and to buy a house, and to work and be a responsible, you know, husband, father, until you retire, and then hopefully to be able to hang on somewhat comfortably until you die. So I know you founded the Appalachian Folk School, the Appalachian Trail Institute, yes, the Contra Dancers organization, but I'm curious, was the thing that was pushing you and moving you, was it to be in the mountains themselves? Was it to, to have your own way of thinking? Is there something specifically that you referenced that you felt then that you knew that you wanted to pursue? Well, I don't necessarily believe in the Darwinian survival of the fittest, although there is some truth to that in terms of natural law. But I I like the concept of survival of the freest. And a few people have said to me that they think that I'm the freest person that they know. And I also love the title of a book that was written uh, called Free Man in an Unfree World. So basically, I think the motivation was to be able to only be held accountable to the people who I loved and trusted the most. And so in this case would be my loved ones, my close friends, and also the person in the mirror, myself. Because I had learned to become very skeptical about the motivations of our societal institutions as it applies to one's individual freedom. I've heard you talk about that the trail forces us to think about our hopes and our dreams. Yeah. And, and the trail strips us down. Yes. And some can't handle it. Right. Is that what you're talking about here? Yeah. Yeah. At the age of 23, because of the way I did the trail the first time in record time, you know, I wanted to make it hard on myself. I certainly didn't want to conquer the trail. Uh, I wanted to see not how much I could take, but how much I could give up how much I could give up of the cultural conditioning that I had had up to that point in time in my life. And so not only was I stripped of physical fat, but you gained that back, unfortunately. I've gained it back. Uh, uh, but I was stripped of my emotional fat. And that was the greatest gift uh, that the trail gave me at the age of 23, that I was stripped of my emotional fat and that I became a much more honest person, a much more transparent person. I wasn't afraid to speak my opinion, although I knew most people wouldn't understand it or even agree with it. But I was being true to myself. This is maybe a weird question, but this is before more of a digital world. Were there withdrawals that you were going through early on, on that journey, on that trail itself to when you were being stripped away? Or could you feel things that you were being stripped of? Well, if I was being stripped of my defense mechanisms, you know, to get me through life and to do the right thing, 
you know, who defines the right thing, you know, what is the right thing? It wasn't necessarily being stripped of it. It was being removed. And, and what's shown beneath that veneer was more truth and more something I could be more proud of and more sure of. I've read where you've said you don't fight the trail. You flow with it. That's correct. You don't expect it to be respect you or to be sensitive to my man-made comfort level and desire to control my environment. You can't stay rigid. The trail is not out there for me. I'm out there for the trail. Is there anything kind of more to what we're talking about here from a cleansing standpoint or what the trail can actually do? Walking the trail is not a requirement. It's not a mandatory thing. It's not a thing that you have to do to get a degree or to have a better job or to earn more money or to seek fame and fortune. You know, so everything has to be done intrinsically. There's no extrinsic motivation to do the trail. No one has ever gotten rich doing the trail. But, you know, the trail, if you allow it, if you humble yourself to it, it will shape and mold you into, for me, it shaped and molded me into the type of person I wanted to be. So I, I trust them. I trust the gifts of the trail. What is the type of person that you wanted to be? Truthful, transparent, self-reliant, flexible. I wanted to know what was important and what was trivial. I wanted to be frugal. I wanted to be practical. I wanted to be romantic. I wanted to be a realist. I wanted to be an idealist. And, you know, the trail gave me the courage to be able to see, you know, some people refer to me as a romantic realist. That's a nice balance there. Or some people refer to me as a practical idealist. So I'll settle for, you know, not that I'm going to have an epitaph or whatever, but he was a romantic realist or he was a practical idealist. So it gave me the ability to journey and to maneuver within two worlds, the man-made, the socially constructed world, and just the world of nature without becoming trapped in either one of them. So, you know, Robert Frost said in Two Tramps in Mud Time, he said, the noblest goal in life is to have one's avocation, one's vocation, as our two eyes see as one. So what you love, if you can make that into your living, that's seamless. It's like we do have two eyes, but we have only one vision. So is that kind of how that's played out in your life? Yes. You wanted to help people succeed on the trail for an example. So you built a very affordable center that teaches and trains people that's not reflective in a lot of ways of the way things are done today. Oh, no, not at all. It's a folk school. Yeah. So am I on the right track here where that's one example that for you, those two eyes seen together as one, it goes back to the core principle, but that's a way for you to live through society and work, et cetera. Right. It is. Like when I was teaching, you know, I was a college teacher, you know, that's teaching an institution. I loved my students. And I, being a college teacher, I had an amount of academic freedom. However, 
I still was teaching in an institution that would have boards of trustees and boards of trustees are members of the power establishment. So, I mean, you did have a lot of freedom on a college campus, but still there was this underlying pressure that, you know, you couldn't become too, too radical. Also, I never really wanted to be an administrator. I've been director of a few things, but sometimes you have to report to people on a college level who have no idea about teaching and effective teaching. And, uh, you know, they've just risen up to their highest level of incompetence. You know, they didn't make it in the classroom, but they have these education degrees. So they become administrators and they make decisions. Sometimes if one's competence makes another's incompetence, makes them feel uncomfortable. So, you know, you have to deal with those sorts of human dynamics that you don't have to deal with on the trail. And when you don't have to deal with it, when you're doing your own thing. So, you know, when I was teaching once every five years, I would organize a group of people and we would walk the whole entire Appalachian Trail. I did that once every five years. That was the time that I could teach the values in the way I wanted to teach them that I couldn't in a uh, classroom environment. So an example, like a takeaway would be if you have these experiences and they change your life, but then you go back to your old ways and you go back plugged in the way that you were and you don't have those interventions or those points where you're almost cleansing yourself in a certain way, you're going to lose the joy in the change in the cleansing that you've, you've experienced. Is that a fair way of saying it? Oh yeah, it's hard. I think it's hard for people to, you know, if they break away from society and they get a taste of that freedom that only the trail can give you, it's hard for people to go back into it. But, you know, to me, my quotes, real life and my trail life were pretty much the same. And uh, no one, no institution was going to take away the freedom that was instilled in me by the trail experience. And, you know, so until I, they do a lobotomy on my brain, you know, like they did with Jack Nicholson and one flew us over the cuckoo's nest. <laughs> you know, I, I still have my free will, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and another good thing that, you know, you can't change the trail. So why spend a lot of energy and, and I can't change the world. I can't change the world. All I can do is to, maybe in a small way, create, help create communities that attract people who have the same values, uh, who share the same values, and, and these are positive experiences. And that's what I can do. I can help create opportunities and communities that can help sustain people who are trying to live freer lives in an unfree world. I watched a video of you. You were talking about the trail. You were talking about a lot of these things that we've already talked about. And this was probably 30, 40 years ago. But it doesn't seem like you've changed that much on the core principles of what you believe from now to today to then. Would you say that's true? Yes. Uh, well, that was the gift that uh, I was given at the age of 23. I was a goner. I knew which side of the mountain I was going to be climbing up on. And it wasn't going to be the side of the mountain that most people climb up on. And I wasn't going to be down in the valley all the time either, afraid to climb that mountain. I was going to take a different route. 
And, you know, that's, I wasn't ashamed. I wasn't going to have anybody shame me or guilt me. That's impractical. That's not realistic. You know, I, you know, I felt it was the truest route for, for me. Were you always that self-assured when you were growing up and as a teenager or going into college? No, not at all. Uh, fortunately, I had, you know, I was blessed with really encouraging parents. You know, they're working class, but they're very, they're very loving, very encouraging. And, you know, I don't have any woeful tales to tell about my upbringing. I had a sister and probably the biggest thing that happened was my sister was like two years older than me and she was about ready to turn 16. And she was vibrant and, you know, nice high school sophomore and well thought of and so forth and active in activities and stuff. And, and uh, she got a headache one day and then three days later she died from a brain aneurysm. You know, back then they couldn't tell what it was, but it was a very untimely death, a very, and we lived in a small town. And uh, I remember when my parents came back from the hospital to tell me that my sister had died. And I always remember their grief and not only their grief in terms of losing one of their children that they loved, but also their grief and having to tell me that my sister had died. And so in my 13 year old little, you know, pea brain, I guess, you know, I, you know, when I was 13 years old, I would be going to middle school and, you know, in elementary school, I'd raise my hand and try to answer the questions. And I was a, you know, good student. I sit in the front of the class, but when I got into middle school, if I raised my hand and, and said the right answer, I would be, you know, belittled or even beat up on the playground by bullies. Jeez. Most of those people went off to the army after they graduated from high school so they could do the bullying institutionally with government approval. Uh, so, so I went to middle school with an imaginary M on my T-shirt. And that M didn't stay at the stand for meanness, but it stood for mediocre. I didn't want to stand out. I didn't want to give the answer when I knew the answer because I, I didn't want to get beat up or belittled by, you know, I was a small kid, so I didn't want to be bullied for being intelligent. So I just wanted to fit in. And so when my sister died in my pea brain, I said to myself, I'm the only one left. I didn't think my parents would have any more children. So I pledged to myself that I would do nothing to make my parents ashamed of me until I was 18 years old. <laughs> I just picked that, you know, right? Age. And so I took the M off of my T-shirt, you know, imaginary M, and I replaced it with an A. I became an achiever. You know, whether it was acting or student leader or, or you know, service club. You know, when my peers started to drink, you know, we didn't really have many drugs back then, you know, or misbehave and so forth, or, you know, treat members of the opposite sex as, objects, I would never do that. So then I went out to college and same thing as high school, I still was an achiever. And I, I, and I kept on uh, wanting to do things that would not make my parents ashamed of me. And so 
And when I became 21, I felt perfectly comfortable about with alcohol. You know, I didn't do alcohol or drugs or I just was an achiever. Had my sister not died, had I not seen my parents grieve, things could have turned out differently. I could have become a bully just like all the bullies that were beating me up and not getting into trouble for. So that certainly was a life event that started, laid the basis for what happened, you know, in my early 20s. And then you had this experience at 23 that we've talked about. Yeah. And and then that's where you experienced the freedom. Yeah. Well, Don West, who I met in when I was 21 years old, and I was his I was his mentee and friend for the last 22 years of his life. Here was a person of heroic stature. I mean, a, you know, a, the only person of heroic stature I ever met, you know, a, a guy that fought for human justice for, you know, almost, you know, 60 years of his life as a poet, as a minister, as a, a leader. I saw someone in real life who I could really, you know, look up to. And he through his own personal experiences, was able to share with me information that I had never received before. So that certainly helped as well. What was that information? Oh, about, you know, uh, the social and economic inequalities uh, that exist in our country. He was an ordained minister, but he saw Jesus Christ as a social revolutionary, someone that gave hope to the powerless. And who, who, because of giving hope to the powerless, he was a danger to the powerful. So the powerful crucified him. And, you know, Don West was character assassinated in the South. His house was burned down by Ku Klux Klan. He was labeled a communist. He was the most heavily investigated Southern Appalachian, quotes, white person uh, during the McCarthy era. Yet he kept on going. And you said he spoke to the heart of people. Oh, yes. Can you maybe touch on that a minute? How did he speak to your heart, or how did you see him speak to other people's hearts? Well, he was from a working-class background, you know, son of a sharecropper. And he would listen to people. And he would listen to their hopes and their dreams and their frustrations and their anger. And he would, he would write these beautiful poems of their thoughts and his second book of poetry, Clods of the Southern Earth, uh, was second in terms of number of copies shown of American poetry up to that point, second only to Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. And some of his books of poetry were later confiscated because they really spoke truth to the power. He was a people's poet. He had his conception of the dignity of humanity and the threats to the dignity of humanity. He was very much, I mean, you know, here, here, here he is writing a poem uh, when he's trying to raise money in New England, maybe 50 years after the atomic bomb, but he writes this poem about only we, you know, when everyone's talking about who should have the nuclear toy and weapons of mass destruction and all that. And, you know, he, he writes this poem that only we, only we, have used the bomb. Only we, and that's true. And we need to look at ourselves. We need to look at our, as a country, our own broken image before we start blind obedience to things that that cut off 
our dignity and dehumanize us. And we have to realize we have to identify the institutions or the individuals that are seeking to keep our innate goodness from us Mm. and from each other. I've heard you say that you have to realistically prepare for several challenges that are inherent along any long distance journey. This is talking about the Appalachian Trail. Mm-hmm. How do you advise, how do you teach people to mentally prepare for something that they haven't experienced yet? Good question. Well, first of all, it can't be a romantic notion. You know, there's a couple ways to hike the trail. You know, some people sign in the register there at Springer Mountain or Katahdin, let's just say, I'm going to hike north until I don't enjoy it anymore or until it's not fun anymore. That's okay. You don't have to prepare for that. But most people, when they start the trail, they say they want to walk the whole trail from Georgia to Maine. Well, that becomes a task. First and foremost, it becomes a task. It's no longer recreation because you have set up yourself for either succeeding or failing. You either do it or you don't do it. And it's not about equipment. You know, uh, the amount of misinformation out there is, you know, there's been a 75% failure rate of people who start the trail who don't complete it. 75%. Now, if I was a teacher and I gave out final exams to my students year after year and 75% of them failed, it wasn't this would be the student's fault. It would be my own fault. And I probably wouldn't be teaching at that school anymore. (laughs) So for about 50 years now, there's been a 75% failure rate on people walking the trail. Now, that's not healthy. And so as an educator, I don't try to set people up for failure. I'm going to try to share knowledge with them that's proven and time-tested and trail-tested as the things that you need to have to increase your chances of completing the trail. So it has nothing to do with equipment or selling you things for profit. It's all about your attitude, your temperament, your level of comfort, and your threshold of pain. Have you seen people progress or improve significantly in those areas? Yes, because they've become aware of that. So instead of spending, let's say, I just throw out a finger, instead of spending 40 hours of your time before your hike debating about ounces and, and nylon and carbon fiber and you know ultralight and all this kind of stuff, they're spending that time thinking about, are they going to have the level of comfort that the trail demands? Are they going to have the temperament that the trail demands? Are they going to have the threshold of pain that the trail demands. This walking the trail is not easy. I have never encouraged anybody to walk the Appalachian Trail because I do not want to be responsible for their pain and suffering. However, if someone comes up to me saying that they're going to walk the trail, then as a social change educator, I'm going to try to provide them with good information which they can either take or not take to help increase their chances of completing. Because to me, a country is only as strong as the number of people who reside in it, who have fulfilled their dreams. If you live in a community where most people have fulfilled their dreams, 
that community will have less violence, less greed, less drugs, less alcohol abuse, because people have reached their dreams. It's not about bombs or battleships or jets or whatever. It's about the number of people who have fulfilled their dreams. You have two children, right? Yes, I do. Do they have kids? Nope. One's decided not to have children simply because of, you know, and maybe in our day and age, there are parents that didn't want to have kids because of the great mushroom. They thought that the world was going to be incinerated and they didn't want to bring children into the world with the nuclear threat. And so I think every generation has, and I would say this generation has a, a dim view of the future of the world. And so some people feel that they'd rather not bring children into a world that they envision. So let's say if you did have some grandkids, or let's say yeah. if you were open to it, the people that come through your school, the people that you encounter, I know a tiny bit of all the people that you've inspired and impacted. Just to go back to the basics, how would you inspire or encourage someone to think about how to come up or understand what their own personal dreams are in a society where I would argue it's harder now than ever to know how to dream or what they could be? Well, see, I don't have to do that. I'm in an ideal teaching position right now. These people come not because they have to or because they're required to or that they're expected to. These people are, are in a distinct minority of people in our nation that have this dream. They have the dream. They have this dream of wanting to walk the Appalachian Trail. And on their own accord, on their own motivation, they're coming to, you know, driving hundreds of miles or flying across the country to this little folk school I have in Northeast Tennessee for five days of preparation. So they are primed. They're, in a sense, perfect students. The only thing I have to say is, if they read my website, is please come in here with an open mind because the information I'm going to give them is going to be very different than what they would expect that I'm giving them that information because it's the information that will increase their chances of fulfilling their dreams. So what I'm curious about, in addition to that, and there's some practical questions I have about the people that are coming to you, but just loosely, how would you define dreams? How would you define dreams and how humans dream and what that looks like? Well, a dream is about a future. It's about a vision. So it's, it's always about the future. So at least that's the way I, I see it. So, you know, if, if you want to put a number to it, let's just say it's a 20-year-old saying where they want to be at the age of 30 or where they want to be at the age of 25 or, you know, a 40-year-old saying where they want to be at the age of 45 or 50 or, or someone that's near the end of their career dreaming about what they want to do for their retirement years. What do they want? How do they want to maintain active? You know, what is their bucket list? So I think a dream is, uh, is always about the future. And it's the two eyeballs coming together as one. And some do a better job at finding that than others. No, I think that's about living your life. Now, 
yeah, I, I run into a lot of young people, 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds who would rather earn their living by doing something that they love. And sometimes that's not good because sometimes when money starts crossing the plate on doing the things that you love, you, you don't love it as much anymore. So that's a, that's a challenge. I have found for some people, in order to do the things that give them the greatest satisfaction, they have to make financial sacrifices. They have to make relationship sacrifices. You know, so if you want to go back to the land and live off the land, well, that's a lot more harder work than growing up in your middle-class suburbs. It is hard, hard, hard work. And when you decide to have kids, you're going to have to say, okay, well, they're not going to get the quotes education that you, you got when you were growing up. So then you might have to homeschool your kids. And so to live a life that you've dreamt of is, it goes against the grain. It goes against the grain and you're going to have to be willing to make those sacrifices to do it. I know when I came up with the vision for the first expedition, the first group I organized up the trail, I was a graduate student. I had worked as a graduate assistant in this academic department. They were grooming me to be the youngest PhD graduate in the School of Education ever. And when I said I was going to do this expedition and, you know, sort of put off my doctoral dissertation, my department chair called me a disgrace to the department. Sheesh. And, and, you know, those are the things, you know, it's hard, you know, there's parental expectations, there's societal expectations. And so there's a lot of, well, you know, we've seen it recently, I think guilting and shaming, especially on social media, you know, virtue signaling or whatever you want to call it. But uh, if you think differently than other people and they have a social media presence, they can make it pretty hard on you. And you're talking about them publicly criticizing you using oh, a yeah. platform. That's what you're, that's what you're yeah. practically saying about guilting and shaming here. Yeah. It's hard, you know, because most people want to be liked. You know, most people want to be liked by their peers. But I gave up trying to be Mr. Congeniality a long time ago. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card. It gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. Can you talk about when you had that feeling when you said the real world was made sensible to you? And that's around the time it sounded like you met Don West. And I know soon after yeah, that. Yeah, after. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
you led this trip with graduate students, et cetera. Can you talk about what you were feeling at that time? Was there any concern or fear about what the next five years would look like? Or was there this kind of mental state of joy to where you were just on to this new journey and you were, you're more present than more concerned about the future and how exactly the next five years or so would take shape? Oh yeah. I mean, it was a vision that had to be done, you know, and uh, it just took over and I did it in 1975. I did another one in 77, another one in 1980. Then in 1980, I, just as a practical consideration, I finally finished my dissertation. And so in 1980, my wife and I made a thing, you know, we had to start thinking about the future. We wanted to have children. So to have children, you have to make sacrifices. And, you know, you're not just a husband or a wife anymore or an individual. You're a father or a mother for the, the rest of your life. And so my wife and, and I made a decision that I was going to find a real job, although, you know, my job was fine, but I was going to have a Ph.D. degree now and that we're going to start having children, trying to start to have children. And the deal was that if the children came out okay and they didn't need 24-7 care, you know, they were healthy and so forth, didn't have any special disabilities or whatever, that in 1990, 10 years from now, I would organize another expedition. And because my wife was an expedition member, she knew how important and valuable that experience was. So that was the plan. So that's really the only time I, I... think I sort of planned ahead. Did that play out the way you described it? No, uh, the two children came out fine. That was good. And then, you know, my wife just started growing apart and we were separated at the time at 1990. I still had an expedition and, you know, I still was employed. We still were living in the same house. So, you know, the, the thought in 1990 would be that the children would be old enough to drive along in a van because all the expeditions are van supported and hike when they wanted to, only when they wanted to, you know, and we'd spend a summer out on the trail together as a family, along with the group that didn't come to be. But uh, uh, later on in the year 2000, I helped my son hike sections of the trail and he finished the trail at the age of 14 uh, in the 2000 expedition. I've heard you talk about dancing. Yes. And you said that it's smiles, it's joy, it's sweat, it's music, it's connection, and it's all this connection between dancers and musicians. Yeah, we, we have the Contra Blossom. You know, dancing is another passion of mine, Contra dancing. And for me, it's, it's a very human thing to have this connection. So we have this thing for Contra Blossom. It's a dance series. Terry and I, my, my second wife and I, have put on about, oh, over the years, maybe about close to 40 dance events, either dance weekends or dance weeks. And our goal, our motto is hands touching, smiles reflecting, and eyes connecting. And those are our folk babies per se. And this one event we usually have at the end of December, it was gonna be its 18th year this year, but we had to unfortunately cancel it because of the pandemic was tremendously uplifting for us. You know, we'd have people from about 35, 37 states all come together in Morgantown, West Virginia, and dance and 
uh, have music and movement and fellowship for you know six or seven days, and that would sustain us through the rest of the time, you know, the the, the rest of the year. And uh, it was really very satisfying. And we're still going to be doing that. We have a week now at our folk school in Northeast Tennessee during the summer, uh, which has been quite nice. But the visuals, the visual is very important. And to me, it's something that I know that my parents would be proud of that I'm involved in. And it's certainly something that Don West, my mentor, of course, they're all past, would also be proud of that I was involved in. Yes, sir. And I know we live and I mean, I personally live on the west side of Tennessee, not in the beautiful part of the state where you live. But something I was thinking about when I saw this from you, if I'm going to go to an event, you know, where I was raised or even now or a party, the dance floor is empty until usually people have had enough alcohol. (laughs) And then once people have enough alcohol, usually the dance floor gets crowded. But I learned from my wife who their family grew up and they just enjoy to dance and they don't have to be drunk to to dance. They, there's this sense of, it's almost like this image of innocence and joy and freedom. Yes. And it's like my wife and I've seen her and her sister out there with her dad and her mom and I just, I didn't see that really when I was growing up and not a knock on my parents at all. It's just, they didn't, they didn't do that. Yeah. And another example to that, I recently, a couple of years ago, went to this party and before anybody else was out there, this really fancy country club, this man got out there with his daughters and he just, it was very, it was just, it was very freeing watching it. So I'm curious if that resonates in any way that one's ability to either A, be more secure in who they are, or B, not being worried about oppressing as many people, does that kind of lead to just this experience of dancing and freedom and joy that it's hard to get unless you have that? Well, yeah, uh, you know, like we live in a society, unfortunately, where people are sort of say, oh, somebody said I can't sing, or I can't write poetry, or I can't dance, and it's really too bad. And there's a lot of people that discover contra dancing when they're in their forties or fifties and they wish that they knew about it when they're growing up because it does bring them such joy, but at least they've discovered it. It can be a very joyful thing. And, and certainly contra dancing is not alcohol centered at all. You know, these are people that value community. They value a healthy lifestyle. Uh, and they, love the unbridled joy and music that's they don't have to be medicated or hyped up to enjoy it. It's just their natural goodness coming out. And so to experience that, is it fair to say that you have to go through a sense of cleansing the way that you talked about the trail? I encourage people to contra dance because that's not suffering. It's a lot of fun. And so I think it's mostly emotional fat, you know, like, Contra dancing is not dancing with the stars. You don't have to be dressed up fancy. You don't have to think about your left foot or your right foot. It's not Arthur Murray, you know, uh, step by step. And, you know, it's just letting the music go into your ears, let it go directly down into your body without thinking about it. And no one's going to be making fun of you. No one's going to be voting you off the dance floor or voting you off the island or voting you off the bachelorette or the bachelor. <laughs> it's just pure community, 
non-competitive. Let's enjoy this music and movement together. That is really neat. Anybody should go in there and look at your videos and look at these YouTube videos of you leading these dances. It's very fun. Yeah, it is. It is fun. Not like the trail. The trail isn't fun. The, the only way the hiking the Appalachian Trail is fun is if you accept the inherent difficulty of it. The inherent difficulty. As long as you accept the inherent difficulty, you can have fun. But the hard work comes first. And dancing can be just pure fun. And I guess what you're saying is it doesn't matter if you have water, don't have water, have food, don't have food. If your hip's hurting terribly or not, you're just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep sticking it out one day at a time from a hiking well, standpoint. Like, 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 like when you say your hip is hurting, there's some people that shouldn't keep on walking if they have something like contramalasia and stuff. There's a, there's a certain physicality to walking where people should not be medicating and taking a whole bunch of pills and just in order to walk pain-free. That's Nothing is worth a permanent physical injury. You know, I, I have a saying in my one-page book, it's better to be a smart hiker than a strong hiker. And nothing is worth a permanent physical injury. So I, I would not advise people. But, you know, there, there's a difference between something that you can keep on walking if you're patient. You know, the, the main thing, I think, is people don't want to walk slower. You know, uh, walking is countercultural. You know, our culture is built around convenience and time efficiency. Most of the things that we buy save us time and save us effort. The Appalachian Trail is neither of those things. It is not comfortable. It is not convenient. It is not fast. And so people have to, and then for some reason, slow hikers have a negative connotation to fast hikers and that we all want to be strong or fast hikers. Well, that doesn't get us any place in real life. The whole point is, is that people don't have to be a fast and a strong hiker to walk the Appalachian Trail. All they have to do is be willing to walk, you know, maybe a mile and a half an hour or a mile an hour for 14 or 15 hours a day, and they'll do the Appalachian Trail. Walking is the most natural thing that we can be doing. We walk every day. We are built to walk. We are not built to win gold medals in the balance beam or the floor exercise. That takes a lot of training. But walking is the thing that we do every day. And you're saying that's where people fail because they have these expectations or they have the gold medal ingrained in their head. And so they're not sticking it out for the process. They're doing it for the outcome. I think a lot of people have a very romantic notion about the trail. When people come to the Appalachian Trail Institute, we spend the whole first day on why. Why are you wanting to do this? Why are you wanting to subject your body to that? And, you know, the people that say, I love the outdoors, that's all they say. I said, well, there's other ways to love the outdoors than walking the Appalachian Trail. They're not going to do the trail. Somebody that says, oh, I love the outdoors. That ain't going to do it. There's other ways to love the outdoors, you know, and so I think that's part of it. But you, you, you want to have a challenge in your life. You want to know how much you can give up, you know, that you need a challenge, that, that it's important for you that you do something very difficult. Are there any things you'd say over the last 10 to 15 years that you've maybe changed your mind on or that you used to think was very important? that you don't think is that important and it's kind of 
affected your life in some way or another? No, it's been pretty steady. You know, I used to like little Debbie Cosmic Brownies, but I don't <laughs> like them anymore. You know, same thing with Chef Boyardee canned pasta, but but that's a physical, that's, you know, food stuff, you know. But in terms of the psychological and philosophical and emotional aspects of navigating the trail successfully, getting to where you want it to go is very similar to the what you have to have in the real world as well. But unfortunately, in the real world, you have less control than you do on the trail. The only thing on the trail you don't have any control over is the weather. So you got to learn to adapt to it. Because, and what you're saying is in the real world, you have people's motives, you have their agendas, you have their impaired thinking, all these other variables. Yeah. That's much more complicated than the trail. Right. And, uh, you know, so, you know, this thing that we've done for 18 straight years, this beautiful dance week uh, in Morgantown, West Virginia, we just had to cancel it because it was, it wasn't under our control anymore. People, because of the pandemic, people view each other now as, you know, I, I'm a 70 year old with an underlying condition. Okay. And my underlying condition is a healthy dose of skepticism. <laughs> and I am not a terrorist ticking germ bomb ready to go off and murder people. I am not that person and no one else is. It's tremendously dehumanizing. What are the things that you want to be most remembered for in the impact that you made and are making? Well, there's an epitaph on Robert Frost's gravestone. And that epitaph said, I had a lover's quarrel with the world. I had a lover's quarrel with the world. And I am a lover. I am a lover of humanity. What do you love about humanity? Well, you know, Don West in one of his poems, Four Gifts for, for a Man, you know, he, he wrote, you know, imagination to realize that we're human, a pride because we are, a love, you know, because we're capable of it, and, and courage to be human, courage to be human. And I believe that we are born with innate goodness. I am not a Puritan. I don't. I am not. I don't subscribe to the worldview that we're born into sin, and we have to read the Bible every day because if we don't read the Bible, the devil is going to get us because we're inherently evil. I do not believe. I do not prescribe to that theory. So when people come to you in your institute, what do you think they're looking for, or what's holding them back? I don't think they're holding back. There, I think they're recognizing that. You know, if, if I was to walk the John Muir Trail, I would love to go to uh, a five-day uh, institute headed up by John Muir. If I was going to be wanting to be a successful women's basketball coach, at least nowadays, I would want to go to a five-day program with Gino Arugema. Now, you could say Pat Summit, you know, about 10 years ago, you know, before she started having mind problems. If I was going to be a a college basketball coach, I'd love to be able to sit and listen to uh, John Wooden for five days. So you go, you should go to see people who have been successful at something that you want to try to do. Yes, sir. And, and I value face to face. So, cause that way people can ask you questions. They can challenge you. They can see your idiosyncrasies. They can feel your passion. 
they can see your weaknesses. They can question better, I think. Yeah. It's beautiful here in the way that you've talked about the clarity that you felt at an early age and the resistance that you fought against throughout your life. And I think a lot of times, all of us, depending, it doesn't matter our skill level, but that love the outdoors, that love the adventure, and they, we get outside, we get in the woods, we get on a river, and we experience the freedom of it. But then we go back to our, our world and we, and we can get depressed. I mean, not, I don't mean that for everybody in, in a specific yeah. way, but a lot of us just kind of stay stuck. And you seem to obviously be a man that's always beat to his own drum that had, very influent, had a very influential mentor at a very young age, et cetera. But I'm just curious at, at this stage and kind of what's coming ahead if there's this pattern or theme that you've seen of where you kind of knew what the answer is. And if that's the case, it, it might just be best to go ahead and go with it. We're mortals. We don't have much time on this earth. Uh, uh, and how do we use our time? You know, and so I've learned to manage my time because if one doesn't manage their time to do the things that's important for them, then time will manage them and somebody else will manage their time. And that time that someone else manages for you may not be as fulfilling as you managing your own time. And so, you know, it's all about cages, you know, like I have a good story about walking through the Bear Mountain Zoo, you know, on the AT in New York. And after going through the woods at hiking at night for several nights, seeing all these wild animals and squirrels and chipmunks and skunks and deer and, seeing their eyes reflected in my headlight and their wildness to, to walk into a zoo and then to see these animals in cages and they're listless. They're the foxes and the raccoons. They're listless. Wow. And we're animals too. And what kind of cages do we have around us? I don't want to be like what, an animal in that cage. I want to be like that animal in the woods. I don't want my sensory instincts to be depleted or extinguished by bars around me. And so how do we recognize when we are in cages? How do we re recognize when a cage is going to be put around us? And, and, you know, the whole thing is, is, you know, where do we place ourselves in this feeling of freedom? You know, most people now just think of freedom as someone, uh, as somebody's fighting for your freedom. Well, no one's fighting for my freedom. I define my freedom, and I haven't asked anybody to fight for my freedom. Freedom isn't a political thing. It's not a, a thing, a national thing or an American thing or a Russian thing. A freedom is what's between your ears. What's between, we have the ability to have our own free will. And unless somebody does a lobotomy on us, no one can take that away from us. Now, our free will may not bring us riches, our free will may not bring us fame. Our free will may not bring us popularity. But, you know, maybe those are the sacrifices you have to have to have free will. Was there ever any point in your life where you thought about not moving forward with the school or not doing the institute or not doing the contra dancers and going back to a more caged life? Did you ever think about quitting? No, uh, I <laughs> I'm retired now, so I'm certainly going to be enjoying the fruits of my labor. Uh, they're not monetary fruits, but I love relaxing. I think in 2015, I was you know walking the trail with an expedition, and I had my Forrest Gump moment. 
Now, the Forrest Gump moment is, you know, Forrest is running across the country. He's mourning for Jenny. And he runs off his porch and he runs to the county. And then he decides to run to the state line. And he runs to the Pacific Ocean. Then he turns around and keeps running back. And, you know, the, they show the graph of him running back and forth America. And after doing this, you know, doing it a couple of times, he, he, he's got a cult following, right? And you know, so he's, he's running through this, you know, out west someplace, Monument Valley, and you know, he's got all these cult guys behind him. You know, they never talked to him because, you know, who is this guy that keeps on running? And it, all of a sudden, Forrest Gump stops, and one of the guys comes up, and he says, what's wrong, Forrest? And he, Forrest goes, I, I'm tired now. I think I want to go home. And he stops. And so I had that Forrest Gump moment in 2015. It was great weather. I wasn't sore. I wasn't doing anything. It just descended on me. I don't have to hike anymore. <laughs> so I stopped hiking, you know, with a purpose. You know, I still hike, but I don't have to keep on doing the athletic. 18 was, you know, I finished. You know, I always like to put things in boxes and tie them up and put them away, you know. And so it took me to 2018 to finish my 18th traverse. Oh. Uh, my ninth section hike, but it, it's over. You know, like uh, I don't have to hike now unless I want it. I'm still involved with the Appalachian Trail, but you know, I'm I'm enjoying relaxing. For a section hike, for somebody that's not an experienced or somebody that hadn't hiked the AT like myself, you would just arrange sections of the AT over a summer when you were out of school or et cetera. Yeah. Or maybe two weeks a year. Mm-hmm. And obviously nine times you, you hiked it completely through yes. throughout the course of the year. Yeah, nine through hikes. Those were the expeditions. I I, I only did one through hike alone. That was my first first hike. But the other eight times were organizing and leading these expeditions. And then I had nine section hikes. And, and I would do the section hike over like five years. You know, one section hike every, in other words, I'd finish the whole trail by doing maybe 10 section hikes over five years. In the first one you did, that was in 73 when you set the record and you set the record for doing it fastest, correct? Endurance record. Yeah. Endurance. Yeah. 66 days. Yeah. 66 and the third days. Yeah. Can't imagine. Last question I've got is just in an age where we are with, you know, government and, and power, the way that you talked about with technology, with digital platforms, globalization, autonomous cars, can you talk about the things that won't change or the things that we need to pursue a life the way that you described? How would you, if you had to just look 25, 50, 75 years in the future, what are the things that you're sure of that won't change and how will the trail or any sorts of wilderness and outdoors adventure cleanse us? I think uh, our curiosity about things, our surroundings, our visions, our dreams, books, you know, our thirst for knowledge, our need for close friendships, uh, people that understand us, people that we can talk with, and then somebody to love uh, and someone to love us. Yes, sir. Thank you for spending time with me this afternoon. We flushed out a lot about the trail itself, the experience, the endurance, the psychological lessons and aspects and necessities of it, but then also feel like we've dug a lot deeper into your philosophy of life. And I've had a great time recording this, and I know I'm going to be coming back to it many times more in the future. 
hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you like the show, please rate it and leave a review. Also, I have a weekly newsletter that comes out each week with the new episode, show notes, and more. You can sign up for this newsletter at podcast.sampcoats.com. Have a great day.